if looks could whistle. I grew up in a gender-neutral household, the only daughter with five brothers. You might have thought my mother would have doted on her only daughter, but she never singled me out with any advice on what it meant to be feminine. She never said to me, Oh, you look so cute in that dress. Let's put a bow in your hair. I don't recall watching her get dressed up for a party, gazing in the mirror, patting her hair, daubing on makeup, or discussing which dress and shoes to wear. She'd scrape a comb across her hair, take a quick look in the mirror, grab her purse, and she was ready to go. The purse only contained a nail file and a tube of chapstick, so distinct from the bulging purses of other mothers. I could understand the chapstick, but the nail file mystified me. What fingernail emergency did she anticipate at a dinner party? She told me that the nail file had been there for years, and she figured she might as well leave it there. Other mothers might refer to the beauty parlor. My mother called it the beauty store, as if beauty was not innate. It was merely something that could be purchased. She only went to the beauty store for haircuts, never perms or dye jobs. This was in the 1960s, where Clairol's slogan was, only your hairdresser knows for sure, when dark roots would be a social catastrophe. She told me, once you fall into that dye pot, you'll never get out. I'd seen TV mobs, June Cleaver among them, and maybe Donna Reed. They looked nothing like my mother. They were movie stars, after all. My mother's identity was based on sports. She taught all her children how to ice skate and ski, play tennis, her favorite sport, how to throw a spiral football, and baseball, including its arcane rules. These were the activities that were interesting to her. I followed her lead. By age eight, I could recite the infield fly rule, a balk, and a drop third strike. In later years, I discovered that the ability to talk sports with men was a social asset. I wonder if she thought the same. Music and wordplay were her other great talents. She often arrived at a party with her guitar ready to serenade the host with a tailor-made ditty. I never heard my father say, Fan, you look lovely tonight. My father was mostly anxious that she might embarrass him with her clever and irreverent wit. As a preteen, I asked her what the word sexy meant. She told me that a sexy woman was funny and could make men laugh. With no social cues from older sisters or aunts, my looks, whatever they might be, didn't become part of my identity. My routine was the same as my mother's. I only looked into the mirror to make sure my part was straight. As a kindergartner, I could wear pants, but in middle school, girls had to wear skirts or jumpers, which were a de facto uniform. I rotated through a small stable of outfits, but I never cared what I was wearing on any given day, never expecting or receiving any comment on my physical appearance. I was a good student and a decent athlete, which was enough. I began to sense a few cracks, a growing realization that looks did count for a bit of something. It sounded like a joke when my mother told me that people thought she looked like Ingrid Bergman and that my father looked like the 1950s movie heartthrob, Tab Hunter. I had no idea who the actress was, but assumed that all movie stars must be beautiful. There was pride in her voice, implying that she was pretty enough to land a heartthrob as a husband. A few days ago, I was sifting through some family albums and found a picture of the two of them taken at their 1950 wedding. Wow, there it is. Yes, I can see it now. My mother has the same hairdo as Ingrid Bergman, the same smooth, creamy skin, and the signature pouty lower lip. My father looks like Tab Hunter's sibling. 
But these glamour shots are not my memory of my mother, which took shape in the 1960s after she had six children in ten years, when the beauty parlor became the beauty store, and getting six children fed and clothed was a consuming challenge. I'm guessing that any pride in her looks was superseded by a maintenance-free identity in being witty, clever, an athlete, and a musician. One day she came home from the grocery store and announced that Debbie had quote, let herself go, unquote. Debbie was no longer one of the town's great beauties. I sense my mother's delight that her identity as an accomplished and interesting woman was timeless. Beauty was ephemeral. My suburban grade school was utterly homogeneous, white, Christian, affluent. I had no tools to evaluate my classmates' looks. Some were taller, some had blonde or brown hair, one redhead was an outlier, and everyone wore the same standard-issue wardrobe. Sure, I realized there was a spectrum, with knock-em-dead movie star looks stretching to the right, and presumably a circus-grade ugly face at the left. I had heard whispers that Lisa was the prettiest girl in our grade, but I had no idea why. Maybe her thick blonde hair pushed her to the right on the spectrum, but I assumed everyone pretty much clustered at the midpoint. This was my status at age 11 or 12 when I arrived at Hillaway, my first sleepaway camp. My bunkmate Nancy was unhappy with her assignment in our cabin. She was a returning camper, a few months older than the rest of us, and was desperate to be in the old-timer's cabin, in a plum location on the way to the horse barn. As I looked at Nancy sitting cross-legged in the top bunk, the spectrum of looks blossomed before me. Nancy did not cluster in the middle not even one smidge closer. I distinctly remember her angular face, pocky complexion, and particularly her sharp nose and cavernous nostrils. I didn't know why Lisa was said to be pretty, but all on my own I could figure out that Nancy was, well, let's face it, far away to the left. She did have one singular talent, her whistle, a loud, piercing whistle that carried across the lake. I thought, Maybe she looks at herself in the mirror and thinks, I might not be the most beautiful person in the world, but my whistle makes up for that. I am special. I am an individual. I wanted that whistle. The entire cabin of girls wanted that whistle, wanted to be as unique as Nancy. I imitated her technique, putting my thumb and index finger in a semicircle on my tongue. I blew until overcome by dizziness. I slid my fingers around on my tongue and adjusted the angle of my tongue and tried different combinations of fingers. I was ready to give up, and then it happened. A loud, piercing whistle erupted with more horsepower, timber, and general greatness far surpassing Nancy's. My whistle ripped through the cabin and far out across the lake. The other campers cheered. Nancy sulked. She no longer had the sole possession of her special gift. I had stolen it. That whistle remains a signature part of my identity. I've used it at sporting events, to hail cabs, to find someone in the Costco parking lot. It is the best thing to come out of that camp. The rest of the camp was forgettable. I hated horseback riding, sucked at archery, and didn't pass the swim test so I wasn't allowed to swim out to the raft. But I could whistle. It was worth every penny. When I returned home, my mother immediately recognized the whistle's importance. She was jealous. I tried to teach her for the next 65 years, but she could never do it. <laughs>